Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is an Ask Me Anything question and answer episode of the podcast featuring Anna Koppelman, who will serve as the interlocutor. And it's good timing for this, Anna, because I'm sure you saw there were some questions about you and Sam. And and uh, uh, so Anna goes through the uh, questions and picks the ones that seem the most compelling. At the end, if there are any additional ones that, that came in late, there might have been one or two I'll, uh, I can hunt and peck for them. But Anna is uh, going to ask follow-up questions and kind of do this thing the way that she does. She's a podcast professional separate from this so <laughs> i feel like at this point it's tradition for me to do the ask me anything episodes with you it's totally tradition also a great excuse to be able to see you because you're far away from me right now and i miss you uh terribly and um Aww. so getting to see your face and have this conversation is really great hi boo how are you hi i'm good how are you yeah uh <laughs> I think, as you know, we're back to work on Billions, and so it's been a strange um, adjustment to be around so many people, and I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility, but I'm to you know, do our best to keep everybody safe, and, yeah. uh, and in fact, we're having this conversation from my office, which is above the stage, so I'm well. How are you? And, and are you doing well? You're out where you go to school, though you're not at school. You're still doing home. You're still school from home, but kind of in a house with a bunch of COVID safe friends, right? Yes. We're, we're a bunch of COVID safe friends. I would describe it that way. Good. All right. Should we get into this? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So um, to start, you responded to someone naming named Michael, I think, Ash. And he said, we will definitely answer this question. So I wanted to make sure we got to it, which is given your adult life as a restaurant in industry insider, which is the place from our childhood, which is no longer with us that you miss the most. Ah, uh, yes, I am. Okay. I'm going to answer this question the way that it can be. Uh, I, I like this question for a variety of reasons. One, Michael uh, Wait, well, was, also, yeah, I was going to say, is this a childhood friend? Yes. Uh, Michael Ash was in the uh, Don Miguel, we called him, because from Spanish class, he was very good at Spanish. He was levels above me, and the Spanish teacher called him Don Miguel, so we all called him Don Miguel. And um, also called him Don Miguel because he carried himself in the manner of someone much older than us, like a Don, very sophisticated, uh, or as sophisticated as someone from, like, Sands Point, Long Island could be. Uh, <laughs> which, no offense, if you're from Long Island, so am I, but honestly, not that fucking sophisticated uh though it seemed it because i guess he would wear shoes that uh you didn't have to bend down to tie you know what i mean they would be like hey, somehow uh like loafers but he here's the thing yes yes boo i see you have a question i was gonna say that's like in the opening scene of the social network where she says what part of long island are you from wimbledon yes exactly right totally <laughs> yeah. true uh and the answer so we would go and it really influenced Dave and my writing, right? The things we that we write about because we would go. We love the movie Diner, and we all would sort of go to these diners. And there was one diner called King's Villa. So there was a diner called the Seacrest Diner that we went to the most. And we would go late at night. We would meet at the diner when we were in high school very often. And uh, there was one called King's Villa that was further, but they had the best waffles. And Michael, what I miss isn't the physical place. 
But I, I think there's something about the kinds of friendships you have with the kind of people you would meet in the middle of the night to talk about your romantic failures. Because let's be honest, why are you meeting all your buddies in the middle of the night if not for <laughs> the romantic failure that happened earlier in the night? And there's something about all of us gathering to uh, pretend that nothing mattered and nothing hurt and that we were uh, mostly fine. And in the beginning of those meetings, uh, probably we're still casting off whatever the wounds were. But I will say that uh, by midway through, the jokes were flying. We were busting on each other. We were busting on people at other tables. We were engaging in a form of growing up in a very deliberate manner. Just the whole idea of being able to go late at night, your junior or senior year of high school, as you were beginning to start to leave home and gather with this group, this rotating group. It was Ash and Shulman and David Levine and sometimes a guy named Larry Higgins and uh, various members of the group uh, who would show up, Zizzo sometimes, Grower uh, fairly frequently. And uh, this gang of uh, mostly guys uh, got to know each other and are those conversations would turn to the conversations about your hopes and dreams and how you saw the world. And it was an incredible training ground. And so uh, I miss the way that we would all uh, engage like that at a time uh, when adulthood was a borning. Do you think those relationships have affected any of your writing? I mean, obviously Libyans. Well, yeah, because like a lot of what Dave and I, have written about is these kinds of friendships and the, the loyalties and bonds of friendship and the ways in which they're tested. And I think, yeah, you're, and, and also the dialogue. Like, I, I think that we were learning back then the way in which we very consciously expressed ourselves in certain ways when we would meet at the King's Villa or the Seacrest Diner or Scobie's Diner or the Kensington Deli or whichever place we happen to Ben's go to, we would, we, we were learning about how to use words to have a certain kind of effect differently than we would use them at school. And so, yeah, not consciously, but, but yes, you're creating this character of who you are. And then later you become more yourself, but you don't sort of forget that. So yeah, it totally, of course, uh, all those kind of formative. I mean, don't you think even now you as a writer, Anna, that the various experiences you had in, in, in high school or middle school, they still kind of are alive for, for you as, as, as fertile material in some way? Yeah, of course. So yeah, that's, yeah. I think so. All right, so someone... Question. Someone named Kent wants to know, what's your favorite story about how a song has inspired a plot twist, a storyline, or a character in your work? Oh, there are many. Um, there are many instances of the ideas all coming together. I guess one of my favorite ones is in this episode of Billions called Chicken Town. We'd heard a story about something that had to do with chickens and the the market in, in, in chickens and a manipulation that was happening. And there was a guy who was 
responsible for counting these chickens and reporting in so that some other people could make a judgment about whether there were going to be a lot or few chickens in the following year. And um, they called him the chicken man. And we immediately started singing this song called Atlantic City by Bruce. And then we realized like how to open the whole episode would be with Atlantic City playing and the chicken man and this whole thing coming together because the Atlantic City starts with they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. They blew up his house, too. But he wasn't talking about a real chicken man. That was a mafia character. They called that. But this idea of juxtaposing uh, those things was incredibly appealing to Dave and me. And um, uh, a woman uh, named uh, Lenore wrote that episode. Uh, but we all sort of uh, came up with the idea together. Lenore's Ian, we all came up with the idea together. And Atlantic City featured heavily in that. So yeah, that and, and that happens all the time. I mean, even the losers in this episode, uh, another episode of the show. And um, I remember when I, I was writing Solitary Man, our, our movie, uh, this idea of um, this this character, the way he thought of himself, the way he'd move around. The, the second I started writing, I I put Johnny Cash's version of Solitary Man in the script, and that I knew was going to be a thread that would pull us through the whole film. So I'm always thinking about the way in which music informs story, and then the story reflects back on the song and changes that. And I mean, you know, you're one of the three people in the world who really understands how much music matters to me and how much it how, how much it affects my moods and how I use music all the time and think about it. And so I, I, I mean, I think I use music like sort of to soundtrack our life, like my life all the time, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah, if I'm just sitting on the couch writing, I'm, I'm playing something or reading, I'm playing something or, right? Aren't I? Aren't, I mean, I think I'm always engaging. Yeah, you're somewhere. rarely in silence. Yeah, I think I'm. I have music yeah. going to sort of help me in, you know, just the daily grind. So I have another question that is about Bruce Springsteen. Um, someone named Jess said in my podcast, I interview Bruce Springsteen fans, and at the end of every episode. I end with the question, um, at the end of Thunder Road, does Mary get in the car? Oh. Man, how many times have we listened to Thunder Road in the car, Anna? Well, mom used to sing me Thunder Road before bed. And I remember it was very disorienting when I heard it with Bruce Springsteen's voice for the first time. That's funny. Yeah, I think we listen to Thunder Road and Jungle Land yeah. constantly in the in the car. Um I have never, I am not somebody who often imagines the end behind, beyond the story. Like the story snaps to a close. And I like that idea that the world, that that world is gone and I'm left with the feeling. I think I'm more interested in the feeling than the narrative with songs most of the time. And I think I like that. Like, like there's a song like Taxi by Harry Chapman, which if you're listening and you know that song, that song has a very clear defined ending. He tells you what happened to both characters. And Bruce has been answering Thunder Road for the rest of his career in a certain way. And I think I'm more interested in the promise, the promise that he's making, the character's making, is that there's salvation in the road. There's salvation in the American dream of getting in your car and driving like nothing else matters and falling in love 
and the roar of the engine and the stereo and the connection between two people. And at 25, I think Bruce believed that when he wrote that song, that you could be saved by rock and roll and you could be saved by romance and you could be saved by flooring a car and an American car and going as fast as you could. Mm. And, and then years later, uh, he writes the Tom Joad album and there's a line on that album. That's an album about how challenging it is to survive in America. And there's a line on that album that says, uh, the highway is alive tonight, but no one's kidding anybody about where it goes. And what he's saying there is, yes, there, there is still the possibility of the feeling of escape. But what I now know is there's no escaping from the bounds of who you are. There's no escaping from the, the limitations of self that you put on or your family put on or the world has put on or the economy has put on unless, you, unless there are structural changes and unless you make certain changes. Which is a way to say I love the romance of Thunder Road. It's one of my favorite records ever made. And... I still believe in its promise, but I'm more animated by its thematic, its hope, its power than I am by the specific narrative of the characters. I have no idea if she gets in the car, but what I think I know is if she does get in the car, at some point she gets out of the car. Uh, despite the best hopes of the song's narrator. Good job picking that question. I don't know that I would have answered that, (laughs) known to answer that question. And um, I love thinking, I'll say, I love thinking about stuff like that. Like I have not articulated that really for myself before, but like I love thinking about that kind of thing. And I think those thoughts are always kind of rumbling around in me. And Mm -hmm. uh, so when I'm prompted to speak about it, uh, it's great because don't, don't you love that feeling when you suddenly get a feeling, uh, come to some sort of a uh, an opinion about a piece of art that you've had in your life? You never had the thought before and then suddenly you're like, oh, I understand it. Yeah, 100%. I feel like right now all of my friends are media studies majors. So my entire day is people coming to realizations about art, which is fun. Yeah, you're saying it with a kind of a smile on on your face because <laughs> because do they change? Why is it change? Are they arguing all the time about these things? Yes. Really? And taking it all super seriously? I mean, I can't really make any jokes because I'm like a philosophy minor, so I'm sure I'm equally. I was going to say I've certainly I've certainly heard your hot steamy takes on Camus. Yeah, Schopenhauer. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard those takes. It's a disaster. Um, okay, some more music questions. Yes. Uh, Ryan said, I was wondering if Brian could reach back and tell us some stories from his music days, specifically what his dealings with D'Angelo were at the beginning of his career. I know from other interviews, he's very humble about his role in D's discovery and hasn't spoken too much about it. Yes. Um, I 
was really lucky to be friends and colleagues with someone named Gary Harris. I loved Gary. He died a couple of years ago. And Gary and I first worked together at a company called Giant Records. And that's when he first mentioned Michael Archer to me, D'Angelo, because D'Angelo had written a song that Gary was recording with some other artists. And then I got a job at EMI and I got Gary hired by EMI. And I was like running a department Gary was doing A&R, Artisan Repertoire, and he came to me and he was like, that kid, Michael Archery, calls himself D'Angelo. I think he's really great. And his good friend, Jocelyn, I think had first seen D'Angelo. And um, and then Gary, I said, okay, Gary, uh, I trust your taste completely. Gary had incredible taste, but I, I gotta, I gotta hear music. And he said, well, the way you'll get it, I think is if I bring him here. So he brought D'Angelo to my office and, but he said, this is Michael. And he sat at the piano, Michael sat at the piano. When you do that job, which I had, then you have, you know, a piano in your office and a guitar and stuff. And, D'Angelo sat at this piano and he played three songs, I think. But all it took is about 30 seconds of one song. And he just played and Gary had the most compelling snap in the world. He was a great snapper along to music. And I remember Gary was snapping and D'Angelo was playing. And as soon as he finished, I said, uh, yeah, well, yes, of course, we're going to sign him to the label. And I helped Gary then take it to the other people and get everybody enthusiastic about it. And we signed D'Angelo. But to me, it's always been Gary's signing. I was involved in it. It, it might not have had I not, had I had no ears at all, like literally on my head um, or eyes to see that guy, um, maybe I would have, you know, missed it. And I guess if I had missed it, maybe he doesn't get signed by the record company. Um but it was really apparent. And I think the thing that I, if I did anything to help, it was that midway through a person who was high up at the record company wanted to drop D'Angelo. He didn't understand what was going on. Half the record had been completed, including Brown Sugar. And he kind of wanted to pull the plug. And I, I fought because what D'Angelo was doing was so different than what anyone else was doing at the time. And I fought to not allow that to happen. And then that guy ended up leaving the record company. I think got fired, but I'm not sure. Someone else came in who understood it. And then the record got to come out. I was not involved creatively. You know, I, I'm much more sort of like, we'll talk about the ones where I was really creatively involved. I mean, D'Angelo knew exactly the record that he wanted to make. He wrote those songs. He, 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 Gary helped. I, he didn't need, they didn't my, need my help. All they needed from me was a yes and it was a really easy yes to give. And they needed me to reaffirm to people how great he was. I was like, I have this picture of D'Angelo and me. It's somewhere on my Instagram from the Grammys the year he won that next year. And I really love that picture because of the time that it was. And because like Gary was right and I was helpful to him and Gary's gone now. And it's so the memory of that, but I like have no idea if Michael Archer would ever remember me. Like he would definitely remember Gary having him come up and play. And he knew me. And I, like I said, I've got pictures with him, but, but 
um, it, it wasn't driven by me. I was just the guy who was smart enough not to say no. We got a question about you leaving the music industry. Um, Chris asked, what was the biggest difference in your life that you noticed when you made the change from working in a job in an industry that you were no longer aligned with and started writing? What was the biggest reward internally, happiness-wise, family-wise, et cetera, that you learned from making this shift in your life? Um, and then he goes on to say that he has a successful business and a great family, but he feels a calling to do more creative work and doesn't know if it's worth it. Well, the first thing I'll say is it was before I, the shift happened before I left because I didn't quit right away. I just got up earlier to write. And as soon as I was writing, I was feeling better. And then that time that Dave and I would get together and write, I felt so alive that it made the rest of the day easier because I'd worked from the best part of myself. And then all I wanted was to get to a place where I could work from the best part of myself. And you recognize it. I'll say, it's not tricky that part either. It's like, I recognized I was working from the best part of myself when I was writing and I knew, okay, well, I got to do more of that so that I'll be the better version of myself, um, which I've talked about enough on here that I don't want to dwell on that. But that is the thing is uh, this, this feeling of purpose, um, of wanting to uh, go about the prosecuting of your day as, as opposed to sitting in meetings and having to be between artists and executives and all these things that I, I was starting not to like. I mean, the very thing I just was talking about. I mean, the fact that you'd have to sit there and explain to somebody why D'Angelo was a genius uh, and that they shouldn't drop him from the label when he'd already recorded Brown Sugar uh, is all the stuff that I didn't like. I knew I was making myself vulnerable by becoming a writer. I knew I was making myself vulnerable to be the next person dropped or whatever. But um, the result of at the end of every day, having some pages I'd written that I could look through and the feeling of time disappearing when the writing was going well, and even the feeling of the writing being difficult. But then the next day reading those pages and being like, well, that sucked. But look, there are these words on a page that wouldn't have been there before. And there's this world that's starting to be created. And there are these expressions that have come up. And I don't know, I just thought of myself differently right away. I was walking different right away, I think. It's funny, Boo, that you weren't, it's so funny because you've only known me as this version. Um, you know, you came into the world with both parents were writers. Yeah. Uh, and, but your brother, I think, and your brother was too young. I mean, he wouldn't have known. He was so little when I started writing, but he was technically in the world for, 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 for that. But, you know, so much of it was about being a good dad in my head was about like, oh, I gotta, I gotta find a way to do something with my life that'll allow me to not be bitter when I come home. And that doesn't mean there aren't days that suck doing the thing you love. Rejection stings and, you know, getting notes you disagree with stings. And there's all sorts of moments. A movie getting panned sucks. A green light going away is painful. I mean, there's all sorts of bad things, but the essential thing I was endeavoring to do made me feel fulfilled at in where I was spending my time at work. And that was a huge difference. I got huge rewards out of working with great artists, some many of whom are still my friends, but essentially it wasn't my work. And I didn't like disappointing those people if it didn't go the way that we all hoped it would go. Mm -hmm.
And I know you said you didn't want to dwell on it, but how do you recognize when you are the better version of yourself? Is it just something you automatically know? There's one, I think there's a lightness uh, in in you, uh, light versus heavy, not light versus dark. There's a lightness. There's, well, a sense of being eager to meet the day as opposed to dreading the day, those things. And also, I think just if part of the whole battle in life is to be comfortable in your own skin, it's just that feeling that there's not a lot of distance between who you are and who you present you are. The work that comes for me from the best part of myself allows me to close that distance more easily. And that is just a feeling in the way that you sit, in the way that you walk, in, in every interaction that, that you have. Does that track? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, someone named Gideon wants to know about your writing routine. He wants to know ways of working, rewriting yesterday's work at the top of the day, rewriting as you go, a specific amount of pages every day breaks, lucky charms. No lucky charms. Um, I, I like what Hemingway says. You want to write, you, you know what's going to happen the next day, but you haven't written yourself out completely. So you don't leave yourself like with no idea what you're going to write the next day, but you also don't, and you, you don't want to like blow yourself out completely. I think David and I usually try to write a couple of scenes if we're writing scenes. If I'm sitting on the, and now, you know, like if I'm, I'm writing scenes on a Saturday or Sunday, I do just kind of write as many as I feel like I can write, but it's grooved in now. I've been doing this for a very, very long time. So um, yeah, if I'm, if I'm outlining, I want to get through an outline, like get through as much of it as I can. If I'm writing scenes, I'm going to write a few scenes and then stop at what makes sense. I'm going to try to march through a lot of scenes, a draft at a lot of scenes. I do reread. I reread up to kind of where I am. I love doing that. I, I will fix stuff as I go. And rewriting is the best. Like when you've written the whole thing and then you get to just rewrite, there's like, it's, you can only make it better. What was there existed already. One trick I have is that when I'm having a difficult scene or a scene I need to rewrite, I love taking it out of the main document. There's something about just copying it and pasting it in a new document and just working on it there that feels very low stakes. And then you're not screwing up the main document at all. And it gives you, uh, for me, it gives me just like a uh, freedom. So I do that a lot. And especially a hard scene, uh, this scene with these four people, this conflict or this, this seems like really challenging. I don't want to mess around in the document I'm in and add length or cut. So I'll just like start a new document and work on it in a new document and then just cut, cut it back in. And that kind of never fails that that's like a, that really works. I prefer writing early in the morning, but when you're making a show, you really can, you can't decide it. Like sometimes I have to be on set at six. So then I'm just going to write whenever I can. But yeah, when I'm just in a writing mode, I'm very regimented. I wake up, I do my stuff, morning pages, meditation, all that. And then I just do my writing. Like I get right into it. You also got a few questions asking about ADD and writing and how those two things work together for you. Someone said, named um, Marketus said, I've heard you talk about your ADHD in the past. So I wanted to ask you, what do you find is the most suitable way to marry ADHD, writing, and creativity. What do you do? I've been diagnosed and impedes my writing. 
Well, I could never finish anything for a long time. So partnerships help if you found the right partner, someone diligent and organized. It's been shown that like ADD people, ADHD people work great in teams because you don't want something about, then you don't let down the team. You do your part. Um, I'm not an expert, right? I'm just someone who's had ADHD for a long time. And I found it incredibly frustrating and painful and defeating for many, many, many years. I tried various different things. For me, Adderall works. I go through many years where I don't take it. And then um, sometimes I realize I'm in a period of time where I'm stretched so thin and my attention is all over the place. And then I'll take Adderall for a period of time. I used to worry that it would affect me creatively, but I can, if we went back and looked at the episodes of billions that I've co-written on meds or not on meds, it was inevitably easier to do when I was on meds, but the end result is identical. And then I, the reason I can do it in years that I'm not taking meds is because on the meds, I've learned how to do it. And I can kind of like remember it for a long period of time, how to force myself to sit there and do the work. I also designed my life. I'll say, I've said this many times, but I'll say it again. I've never balanced a checkbook in my life. I've never paid a bill. Amy does all that stuff. There are things that I've had to offload to other people. And I even when I couldn't really afford an assistant, meaning you wouldn't necessarily have like had an assistant because like otherwise I couldn't get anything done because um, in certain ways I'm um, just not up to the task of doing certain, you know, handling certain kinds of basic responsibilities that for you listening are probably so, they're just drudge work, but it's like nothing to you. You just know how to do that. For me, that kind of drudge work is impossible and maybe impossible overstates it. Like if I absolutely had to in order to save someone's life, I could probably do it. But the cost of it to me, it just defeats me. It's debilitating. I have to lie down. So in our business life, David has always like managed all that kind of stuff, our expenses, and he's just willing to take that on. And I'm unbelievably grateful that he does. And in my home life, Amy takes that on. And... um. So that's lucky, and, and it wasn't conscious in the beginning. It's just the way that it went. But now I'm pretty aware of it. And then that frees me up to do the work. And the other part of it is I only will work on stuff that I love. That's why it's very easy to do the podcast because I'll only talk to people I'm genuinely interested in. And although I have to prepare a lot, and I saw someone asked a question about that, and I do a major preparation, um, but I don't mind because I'm fascinated. You know, hyper-focus is part of having ADHD, so... When you, when the hyperfocus locks in, it's it's great, and I can do the work. I, I it'd be a lie to say that it wasn't a struggle, and like you know, when you're somebody who has ADHD, you're in conversations, and if people don't know you well, they can think you're disinterested in them, and their feelings can get hurt, and they're right to have their feelings hurt, even if you didn't in any way feel disinterested in them. Particularly, you were just off in your ADHD world, where I find myself sometimes, but I work on it. My family helps me work on it because they tell me. And uh, I don't know, did I answer the question? I think you did a great job answering that question. There was another question asking if you take like any active 
behavioral or mental steps um, outside of medication, which I think you did answer in that. Well, exercise, exercise helps a tremendous amount, like uh, to get the endorphins flowing and to just get the, 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 you know, that feeling, the ADHD feeling out. So I exercise almost every day, pretty much every day. Sometimes when you're shooting and then you have meetings after, like you just can't, but basically I exercise every day and meditation helps a lot. You know, I meditate, I journal and, 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 I exercise and those things are long walks. Those things really do help. So I do those things and the music, I do think the music helps. Like I'll put on music that gets me in the right mood to work on a certain thing. But also if we look at it, I've organized a life. I don't have a regular job. So I've never had a regular job. And so I got lucky that I had a skill at this. And then I worked really hard at it, but having a regular job with certain kinds of meetings all day that I wasn't like helping to direct, I think would be very challenging and I'm not sure how I would deal with it. Speaking of meditation and ADD, somebody asked if you had any recommendations for starting to practice with ADD because it seems incredibly hard to focus to that extent. Yeah. So I, when I learned to meditate, I was not on any meds and, and, um, no, but I look, I do transcendental meditation. It's very easy. I don't stump for transcendental meditation. I, I know it's expensive and I'm, it's not for me to tell you how to spend your money. For me, it was invaluable and an easy form of meditation. I can drop right in and it's not hard. And in fact, I think it helps. But again, I am not a doctor and what do I know? It just would work for me, but that works for me. You mentioned the question in your answer, but somebody wanted to know, how do you prepare for a podcast episode? For instance, an interview with Todd Rungren. I can see how closely you listen to the podcast, Anna. Thank you. Rungren. You know I never uh, listen. Yes, Todd <laughs> Or I guess it's here. It's like the rewatchable Godfather part two. How long does it take? Do you find that you've gotten better, more efficient at preparing over the years? Sure. I, I also think it's, yeah. I'll say that I've listened to my brother and I've listened to Soman. And that's probably it. No, you've listened to more, but yes, not that. Many. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I really do prepare. Like I, I, I have somebody uh, do the initial. First of all, I only have people on if I'm really interested in them or their work. So I know a lot of it going in. And if you listen to the podcast, you know that I'm pretty encyclopedic about like that kind of work. So I, you know, I know the records that these people have done, or I know the books they've written, or the movies. And then it's just refreshing that knowledge, finding new things. I spend time. I spend at least an hour, two hours going through. And I really think about it. If I'm going to have someone to Todd Rundgren on, that body of work, I'm going to think about how I want to approach it. And I'll say this. I'll read the books like I do read the books. So I'll delay. Like I delayed the podcast with Laura Jane Grace because I realized she'd written um, a book and I hadn't read it. And I, I couldn't possibly talk to her without reading her memoir. And the same with Todd. I, I made sure to read Todd's memoir too. Like, I don't want to talk to somebody and just do the same interview that 10 other people have done. So I'm going to try to read a bunch of information and then just be free and in the moment and listen. I always make a list of stuff to talk about. I rarely get to it, but I'm prepared. I have it there, so it's there if I, if I need to. But I enjoy that. If I, 
if I didn't enjoy it, I couldn't do it. I, I want to dive in. I want to know like what makes the person the way there. That's why I do the podcast. I'm curious. I've also listened to Adam Grant. I'm not thinking in my head. Um, (laughs) Another person named Adam asked, how do you choose what project to tackle next? In 2020, I wrote three books. Well, one finished in 2020 and two finished in March, 2021. These big projects were basically my identity for a year. Now that they're done, I'm not sure how to pick what to tackle next. I know and love the dip as a filter for picking projects. What um, have interviewed the legendary Seth Godin. Shame, um, the last chapter about actually picking dips is missing. What's this person's name? First name? Um, Adam. Adam, dude, chill, man. You wrote three books. What are you? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you? What are you? What are you beating yourself up for, man? Go, t- go, take a jog, take a swim, have a cruller, have like an uh, like have like an iced <laughs> cruller or something with it. Like maybe there's cream in it. Like they call those things like Paris breast, or or if you want, like I guess I might have an eclair. I might treat myself to an eclair or something like that because <laughs> you've and like a, a tea, but I would not coffee because you seem amped up enough. Like maybe just like a little chamomile or something like that, something lovely and herbal and. Breathe. You've written three books. You'll you'll figure out what the next one is. Journaling is my only like my my kids. I mean they, they want to kill me for it. But morning pages, Julia Cameron, just do the morning pages. You'll figure out what you want to write next. But but you wrote three books. I'd say chill the fuck out. Now that's your next book. Your next book is I'm Adam and I need to chill the fuck out. I'm proud of you. It's amazing <laughs> that you wrote three books. That's really incredible. You'll find the next thing. All right, Boo. Let's do like one more question. Okay, one more. Unless question. you have like, if you think there's like a couple that we should definitely get to, but. Okay, I have. I think I have a good final question. Okay, great. Someone wanted to know what's the best thing about being married. Wow. You and Sammy. <laughs> Obviously, no. Uh, I mean, yes, that's actually true, as you know. Look, I married someone, and I can't wait to have her on this podcast again, Amy Koppelman, who's a great writer and just finished, and director, and just finished uh, making her new movie, A Mouthful of Air, starring Amanda Seyfried, which will come out at some point this year. And, um, you know, having someone you respect and admire and love who loves you and who you could be 100% yourself with is really something I wish for, for everybody. And, and Anna, you know, our family, we, I mean, the four of us are talking all the time, wherever we are in the world. And, and yeah. there's nothing more important to me. Um, and, uh, so that's the best part, finding someone who really makes you smile and laugh and who you get a kick out of at all times. I can't tell you how many times I look up, see Amy, and I'm just overwhelmed by the fact that, I mean, my kids see it all the time. Like, I'll just stop and be like, how did I get this lucky? Like, I do say that kind of thing all the time around the house, you know? I genuinely feel that way. Um, And I'm going to just say one more. My friend Warren Light, who's a hugely successful showrunner, he runs SBU and he's an award-winning playwright. He was like the sixth guest ever on this podcast or something like that, or the 12th. But Warren asked me a question online, like, how do you navigate the politics of it all? And I, I think what he's talking about is, navigating with between networks and actors and writers and all of it. And the, 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 the answer is, and Warren's brilliant at all this stuff, but the, the answer is by keeping in mind that everybody wants the same thing, which is the show to be great. And then where I am, people like Amy Israel, who's the 
most direct contact we have at Showtime. Just they're so wonderful and they care so much about the show and they're so supportive. So I have a really good situation in that Showtime they treat us very well. Uh, at other times in my life, I've handled the politics poorly. And you just kind of keep trying to get better and not think of them as politics, think of them as people, and think of try to understand what these people want in the situation, what they're afraid of and what they need, and then try to address the concerns uh, in that way. Uh, I am always, because you're so far away, concerned about you, Boo, and uh, it's so nice <laughs> to see you here uh, on the Zoom. Uh, I love you. Thank you for an- asking me these questions. Let's do this again kind of soon. Everybody else, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. Anna's on uh, Twitter, though she doesn't tweet very much, at Anna Koppelman. And um, we will see you next time. Love you, Dad. Love you.